So we're back on, on uh, this rather heavy, heavy stuff on the re-acceptance, you know, the, uh, the cosmic conflict and the future of America, where we have uh, some uh, perspectives on, on a resurgence of ideas, such as the re-acceptance of the church estate, uh, re-acceptance of the extreme economic inequities that we have talked about, and we are now still on the topic of re-acceptance of unaccountable authority. And then uh, the last topic here will be re-acceptance of the mother. So, <coughs> where are we? Here is a statement from... Uh, this is not going to be the core of what we will do today, but I just thought I'd, I'd run it by you, see what you think. Uh, here is something that was said yesterday in South Carolina by one of the people running for president, currently trying to, to win the Republican no nomination, former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney. He says that as president of the United States, I will devote myself to an American century, and I will never, n ever apologize for America. I believe we are in an exceptional country with a unique destiny and role in the world. Not exceptional, as the president has derisively said, in the way that the British think Great Britain is exceptional, or the Greeks think Greek, Greece is exceptional, or the Norwegians think Norway is exceptional. Uh, in Barack Obama's profoundly mistaken view, there is nothing unique about the United States. Well, just get us started here. <laughs> I mean, maybe you have sort of tuned out during the summer, so here is something to think about. Any, any comments on that? Is, is that, is that, uh, is that un... Uh, uh, well, what is he actually saying? And, and how does it sound in your ears? This could have been said by others. I, I'm, uh, it, would, it would not be, it, it's a little, little unfair maybe to attach it to a, to a specific individual. And I, and I think there is a little bit of a risk for me to bring it, bring it up, up here. But uh, I, I, I just want us to, to get our concepts to sort of see what are we talking about when we talk about unaccountable authority. That's my topic. And I just want to, to see how we, we uh, think about matters like that. I agree where he says I will never apologize. Countries, politicians, and general administrators are not allowed to admit any mistakes. If we were to apologize for things that we did wrong in the world, that would make us exceptional. Well, are you really sure? Are you are you sure about that? Aren't there some countries that really had to step up and apologize for things they did? I mean, Germany, for example, Second oh, World yeah. War. Aren't aren't we quite happy that that the current German uh, government or that the post-war German government profoundly apologized to the world and said we really, really that was horrible what we did? I mean, would would that be? They they forced you. Uh, on the subject of Norway, the British were on the, the verge of invading Norway. Hitler beat them by a day. And at the end of the war, the Nuremberg trials, one of the crimes that they were, the Germans were accused of was invading Norway. The Brits and the French were a day away from invading Norway sure. themselves. <coughs> it's a touchy top subject. Norway was safe. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, 
take the microphone away from him. <laughs> I, as a Christian, believe that this has been a special country. It continues to be, and because in many ways we're we're moving away from the original experiment of being there with God. This was a Christian country, and I personally make no apologies about that. If anything, I think as we move away from that, yes, this country goes down. And for us to say, oh, we have to apologize, we have sinned against the world. Anytime there's anything happening around the world, the Americans are the first to give. They are the first to go and help. And yes, I don't think this is a, a perfect country by, by any means. But to say it's not exceptional, I think in, in my book, it becomes an unchristian thing to say. I'm not going on a limb. Well, we need to take the microphone away from you, too. <laughs> Well, I just meant, I didn't really mean for us to, to discuss this topic. I just wanted to, to do conceptualize, to, to sort of hone in on the concept. Because what is he really saying? You know, let, let, just for the record, I think this country is an exceptional country. I think there could be, one could make a claim for a sort of an American exceptionalism. And I would be very specific on which point I think this country is unique. I think it is unique in, in, in its commitment, in its constitutional commitment to the separation of church and state. I think that, you know, yes, there are, there are, there are very interesting things in, in the American constitution on the separation of powers president, congress, judiciary, you know, that, that has been thought through in, in, in the U.S. It is actually the first country, it is pretty much the only country that has had a thought-through idea about how religion should relate to politics. And so the First Amendment, the separation of church and state, that kind of commitment is quite unique in the history of, 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 of nations. Uh, now, uh, so formally, going on record, having, having thought that through, so you do not, you know, you do not have a, a religious sort of criterion or a, a religion aspect that is supposed to play itself out in politics. Uh, which, of course, now for this particular candidate, Mitt Romney, is, is working... You know, it's not it's not working for him because he, some people hold it against him that he belongs to a certain certain uh, religious faith. So here is the exceptionalism that I would, you know, really really applaud and endorse. It is the separation of church and state. Other things in the in in this in terms of U.S. governance may be. Not, not so, so spectacular. But isn't it problematic to say, I will never, ever apologize for America? Because what do you say? What, how do you see yourself then? You see yourself as infallible? You want your, your country to, to see itself as infallible? I think America, and, and just to, to, to sort of ruin my welcome here, I think America should apologize for helping to topple uh, Salvador Allende in, in Chile, who was ele elected in, 19, in the 70s. I think it would not be bad. It would not have ruined America's image in the world to apologize for that. I think, 
I think the U.S. ought to apologize for, for supporting, for the CIA to, to, to be part of, of, of uh, toppling the elected ruler of Iran in the early 1950s. I think that would have not been bad for the U.S. standing in the world to apologize for certain things, for overreach, for, for, for in, intrusion into in other nations' affairs. That's my opinion. But here we're just doing, sort of conceptualizing. There is a kind of sort of commitment to not be held accountable in the world of nations. And that part of accountability, that fallibility and accountability, they kind of go hand in hand. And unaccountability and infallibility, they go hand in hand. Now, I need to let you, a few of you, Nabil is shaking his head here, so tell me what was wrong there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not that, it's not that you have to grovel. It's not that the country has to grovel. It is just that there is a certain, a certain uh, uh, what should I say, a certain social contract among the nations where, some, where when wrong is done, if wrong was done, you apologize. Yeah. But, okay, hold it, hold it there. Now, we do not disagree about the exceptional freedoms that you, that you may have it, or that people still have in the U.S. But my, my uh, example there, for example, the assassination of, of the elected leader of another country, should that be part of the sort of uh, uh, repertoire of options for a country to assassinate somebody else's leader. That's more doubtful. Now, we're leaving that topic now. We're not going to do this. I, I need to give you something else to give ourselves breathing space. I saw this on Facebook yesterday. <clears throat> 30 years ago, we had Steve Jobs, Johnny Cash, Jobs, I guess, Steve Jobs, Johnny Cash, and Bob Hope. Now we have no Jobs, no Cash, and no Hope. <clears throat> anyway... Quite a remarkable person who has passed away. Uh, he, um, it was interesting for me to observe that one of his best friends is actually Dean Ornish. Uh, I read that in LA Times, that Dean Ornish, who has been here a number of times and, and who is a, a person very influential in lifestyle issues, uh, was a close friend of, of Steve, Steve uh, Jobs. I spent my summer reading a couple of things, and I really, really enjoyed this book by Paula Fredrickson. Paula Fredrickson is a professor uh, in uh, Boston at the Boston University and also a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She is somewhat, something as unique as a person who has left Christianity for Judaism. She's a very, very influential, recognized scholar in the, in the, uh, among biblical scholars and an expert on the history of early Christianity, one of the leading experts. She's an amazingly engaging speaker. Uh, and uh, I read her book, and, uh, and uh, uh, I wrote to her afterwards, thanking her for her book and asking if, for her permission to send her my Sabbath book which she gave me permission to do, and, and she, I sent it to her, and she wrote me back and thanked me for the book. Because I think she, her take 
on the early uh, on the history of the of early Christianity, her take on it is quite similar to what I have tried to do in a more humble way in my Sabbath book, sort of seeing seeing a more complex situation, and particularly seeing that there is no sort of clean cut. Uh, separation of ways that early on, first century, you have Judaism and, and Christianity. You have Jewish believers in Jesus who do not consider themselves Christians in the sense of having a completely separate religious identity from, from their Jewish faith identity. So what she does in this book, her end, her end point is really to show that Augustine is less hostile to the Jews than had been the case by other Christian thinkers before Augustine. Because anti-Semitic uh, sentiments among Christians started very early in the first century, second century. Even at the uh, end of the first century, it, uh, the anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic rhetoric against uh, uh, or. Christian rhetoric against Jews is quite savage, and, and, and it gets worse and worse. And Augustine, in some ways, takes a step back from that and, and, and wishes to, to leave for the Jews some breathing space, you might say. Uh, that's one. That's her main errand. But while carrying out or sort of moving toward that goal for her, for her book, she also talks about the evolution of Augustine's own thinking, how he moves from thinking a certain way, specifically how he moves from thinking that the way God is doing things is something you and I can understand, that it will not be completely outside of human understanding to appreciate God's ways. He moves away from that because he is debating with other people. He's in, 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 in very heated discussion with various groups in his own time. And there is also a change of fortune for his own, for his own role. So he's moving away from that toward a, a commitment to say, you cannot understand God's ways. God's ways are simply incomprehensible. You better leave that alone. So, in some ways, what he is saying is that there is a movement away from a view of God where God, in some ways, is accountable. In some ways, presents him, himself, he presents his ways to us for, I say this, you know, in, with uh, acknowledging the limitations, in some ways that, that, that it, it invites consent, it invites approval from you know, God's subjects, you might say. And Augustine is moving away from that. Now, this quotation here next to, to Paula Fredrickson's book is from another book, but a sort of retrospective on, on how this subject of, of God and, and understanding God uh, has played out in Christian history. Pierre Bale, who is quoted here, uh, uh, was a uh, very influential Christian philosopher in the 17th century. He wrote a book that was the best-selling book in the 17th century. It was all over the place, very influential book. And here is what uh, Bierre Bale says. 
Christian theology invincibly confirms this in that it tells us that the torments of the damned will be eternal and continuous and as strong at the end of 100,000 years as they were the first day. That's what Christian theology says. You agree with that? Is that something that commends itself to your understanding? Will you embrace that? Do you vote for it? That it is quite hard for human reason to accept that. But that is what you have to accept, isn't it? You see, that's what he's saying. So how do you accept it? How do you come to terms with a belief like that? So here is what Pierre Bale says again. This is just a cheap, a sort of quick way to get to the heart of this book by Paula Fredrickson, what she's arguing, what she's seeing in, in Augustine. So here is the here is the advice, and this would have been Augustine's advice too. Then, all of this warns us that we should not dispute with the Manichaeans. The Manichaeans they had a view of of two powers, good and evil, that were uh, almost equally matched. All of this warns us that we should not dispute with the Manichaeans until we have established the doctrine of the elevation of faith and the abasement of reason. What must be done then? Man's understanding must be made a captive of faith and must submit to it. He must never dispute about certain things. Do you hear what is going on here? You, you, you see what is going on here? Well, what is it? There are certain things that we are discovering that God is doing. And those things seem to us quite difficult to accept. What is it that you have to, what, that you have to, to accept in, uh, in the Augustinian paradigm? You have to accept that God has chosen some people for salvation and others for damnation. You have to, that, and that, that is God's will. That, see, God's sovereign will, he has decided that some will be saved, some will be lost. And those who will be lost, well, what will happen to them? Well, they will be tormented forever, and it will be just as bad after 100,000 years as it was in the beginning. You know, it goes on and on. Well, that's hard to accept. How do you come to terms with it? By faith. By faith. That's what you do. You elevate. What is he saying? That you elevate faith and you abase reason. You say reason doesn't count for anything here. And that's what I'm calling in theology a step that moves theology beyond accountability. You, you, could you follow me there? See, that if you cannot understand it, if it is beyond sort of any, any sort of, that there is no meaningful input on our part, then you have said to the person or to the power doing it that, that there is no, we do not hold you accountable. You are unaccountable. There is no, you, you can't explain it, or you don't owe us an explanation, or, you know, whatever, however you will say that. Can you see, see what, what, uh, so, if it cannot be comprehended, then there is no accountability. This is profoundly, this is sort of the bedrock of Christian theology in the post 
Constantinian era. So here is Augustine, who dies in 430, and here is Constantine, about 320. And, and so <coughs> there is a kind of movement in, in that direction. Uh, I should mention, uh, um, just to, to uh, this is sort of a full disclosure kind of thing, but uh, a, um, a theologian who teaches, I don't think I've mentioned this before, because I think it happened during the summer, somebody um, who teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary has written a, he writes a blog, he has written a blog on my Sabbath book, seven pieces. He's written a long-running commentary that he's put out on his blog. He's written 40 books. Uh, and and he, uh, he says about my view of Constantine that I, I am a Constantine basher, that he says I belong to the Bash brothers. <laughs> he's very, very entertaining. Very, he's a very learned man, and he thinks that I am very rude with Constantine. And I, I have written him back. I'm not sure he received my mail. I'm hoping that I can establish a little bit of a dialogue with him. But I wrote back and I said, the problem is not Constantine. It's not what Constantine is doing or is up to doing. The problem is Eusebius. The problem is how the Christian church understands politics. What, it, what the Christian church will do to the overtures of the state. And the Christian church will do what? They will hug each other. That's what they will do. You know, they, and the embrace of the Christian church, that's, in my view, the problem. So, so uh, he has it a little bit wrong there. You know, in whatever sort of way we talk about God, there will be need for faith. But the question is, what is it that you are supposed to, you know, what, what is it that faith is, is, or what you're asked to believe? But yeah. this blindness of faith, faith without, without understanding, would be, would, be, would be, it seems to me, a blockage to knowing the person. I think that's true. I, I, I think you're, you're, what you're saying there is, is right, that, that that kind of view of faith is actually not to know the, the object of faith, is actually to put that sort of beyond, beyond us. Okay, let's, uh, <clears throat> so a couple of things here then, this is uh, uh, Paula Fredrickson, because there is another thing moving here. There is one, the one, one aspect that is moving is that there are certain things that are incomprehensible, such as God electing some to be saved and some to be lost, and also uh, the issue of, of, of eternal punishment, that there will be infinite punishment for finite sins. That's, uh, you know, something that is part of it. And then there is also, of course, the change of political fortunes that Christianity from being a persecuted minority has become a dominant majority. And that, that impacts the way we interpret things. And she is quite clear on that too. So she, she is saying that Augustine identified God's purposes with Rome's policies. Politics had recast prophecy. And... That, could that happen again? Could that in some ways play itself out again? It seems to me that now you are looking at some, somewhat of a constant, something that could uh, actually become, become part of the challenge. 
that politics recasts prophecy, that our own political context in some ways colors the way we read and the way we see uh, uh, even the Bible. The church gave, this is Whitehead, Whitehead is the originator of what is called process thought, and I am not a great, a great. Uh, uh, I don't really think process thought. I shouldn't say that at Loma Linda because at Loma Linda there is a lot of process thought is is not uh, held in 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 low regard, and I don't want to to get into that. But Whitehead's statement here, I I, I do agree with very much. The church gave unto God the attributes which belonged exclusively to Caesar. And one of those attributes is what? When you, are, when you wield imperial authority. Well, war, sure. What else? Sort of base, basic. When you wield imperial authority, you, you don't get voted out of office. I mean, if you're the emperor, do you get elected as emperor? You don't get elected as emperor. You know, you are always, you are, you, whatever position you have, you have it for life. Imperial authority is unaccountable authority. There is no mechanism for accountability. And of course not. It doesn't need to explain itself. Now, it wasn't that, that stark because the emperors knew they need, they, what, what did they know? Well, they knew that if you got really unpopular, somebody might sneak up on you and assassinate you, which they did all the time. So what did you do to, to appease the population? Well, you, you took them to the Universal Studios, you know, on, on tours, you know, bread and circus, you, you know, entertainment and stuff like that. So, so anyway... But it is in some ways, so you clothe, what he's saying here is that you clothe God with the attributes of an imperial you know, authority, that you put that into, into your theological equation. Can you see that? There's a sort of a retroactive influence of, of politics on theology. How does this work for Luther, for example? Let's do, let's do Luther here. And on this subject, Luther is very much an Augustinian, which he was. You know, he was an Augustinian monk, but that's not the whole thing. There is, you know, Luther is very much part of, of a notion of God's imperial will. From this, it follows irrefutably. You can't, irrefutably, that's very strong, that everything we do, Everything that happens, even if it seems to, to us to happen mutably and contingently. Those are very difficult words. What does it mean, mutably and contingently? That it is something that happens freely. That it is something that happens because you wanted it to happen. You, you had control of it, even if it seems for us to happen that way. It happens, in fact, nonetheless, necessarily and immutably. That's kind of det deterministically, that it, ha that it happens and you cannot do anything about it if you have regard for the will of God. For the will of God is effectual and cannot be hindered since it is the power of the divine nature itself. Moreover, it is wise so that it cannot be deceived. 
you know. This is a difficult topic in Luther. Luther wrote this book, The Bondage of the Will, in answer to one of the great humanists of his day, Erasmus of Rotterdam, who had written a book called The Freedom of the Will. And Erasmus was a a very learned man. The first scholarly edition of the Greek New Testament was put in uh, was put out by Erasmus, so he he has he did a lot a good service, but <coughs> just to to put this into perspective, Erasmus is in my view a more shallow individual than Luther. I think more highly in some ways of Luther than of Erasmus, even though on this point I think Erasmus is right and Luther is wrong. There is, there, is a, such a, there is such an abandon in Luther's convictions that you cannot not respect it. You have to really, you really see what he's, he's up to. But here, by saying this, he is basically putting God up as a, as a person who wields imperial authority. That whatever you think you are deciding, it wasn't you deciding it. God was the one deciding it. And, and, and he argues that uh, very, very forcefully in, in this book, The Bondage of the Will. Uh, and he actually, you know, in, in existential terms, in terms of how we experience things and how we find ourselves to be powerless sometimes against sin, that we fall into temptation and we can't understand how did it happen you know, Luther is actually quite useful to, for that kind of purpose. Erasmus is too sanguine about human nature. You know, so I would give much credit to Luther for some things, but the basic paradigm nevertheless becomes, becomes quite, quite, uh, quite problematic. Look at this. Faith now must be in conflict with understanding. This is the highest degree of faith, to believe God merciful when he saves so few and damns so many, and to believe him righteous when by his own will he makes us necessarily damnable, so that he seems to delight in the torments of the wretched and to be worthy of hatred rather than love. If then I could by any means comprehend how this God can be merciful and just, who displays so much wrath and iniquity, there would be no need for faith. That's an awful, awfully heavy load for faith to carry. That kind of faith, that that is what you're asked to believe. Now let it, let it be said again, faith will always have to carry something. But do you want it to carry that? to put such a stark opposition between faith and understanding. That's what Luther is doing. To Luther, God wields unaccountable authority. From Augustine through Luther, Calvin, the name of the game is unaccountable authority, theologically speaking. See, you know, there is theoretically nothing terrible God could not do that you would not have to say, well, God did it. And that's all there is to it, you know, that you just have to buy that. So, then 
Well, of course, this I don't want to do much on this one, but but <clears throat> here we are, uh, 1870. It's really, it's really quite amazing that that the Roman Catholic Church could do a could go out and and do in 1870 at that particular time, that extremely sensitive time in European religious, political, and intellectual history, actually come out swinging like that and assert a notion of infallibility at a time when things seem to sort of just fall apart and, and every man's opinion would, would have merit, you might say. It is quite amazing. Uh, now, that was not... There were many... Uh, bishops who were opposed to the, the dogma of infallibility, but, but, uh, but nevertheless it was voted, you know, it was quite a, quite a political game to get that through. So what, what is he saying? That when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra from his uh, teaching uh, position, uh, that is when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teachers of all Christians in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. He possesses, by the divine assistance promised him, and blessed Peter, qualified, qualified, nuanced, you know, very, very uh, circumscribed. He possesses the, that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith and morals. So if you have infallibility, what do you have then? You have unaccountability. That's what you have. There is no, you cannot, you cannot, and, and, and especially, especially why? Because who has infallibility? Not you, not me. That person, that authority, that individual has infallibility. And all, all of us, what? Should we do? Fall into line. Fall into line. So infallibility and unaccountability, they go hand in hand. Fallibility, well, there you need accountability, you see, because we need to correct things. We need to have a sort of give and take. So anyway, I just want to, to put this as background, because here, look at this. Now here is a Seventh-day Adventist voice saying things that I'm not even sure the, our church really could go, could go. Uh, yeah, you had a comment there. I am implying that does, does divine accountability means divine fallibility, you know, because we kind of set it up to, to make it mean that. So can you have, <clears throat> could you have an infallible authority that nevertheless invites accountability? Well, let's look at, 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 our, at the leading voice in Adventism to see what she says. And I, I just, your eyes can run this, uh, through this faster than I can read it. First, in the book, The Great Controversy, Ellen G. White is, is quite, you know, historically on target by doubting, 
you know, by, by raising uh, criticism on, on the Vatican Council in 1870, and, and, and not, not quite willing to forgive, you know, the audacity of our claim, of the claim of infallibility. Have these persons forgotten the claim of infallibility put forth for 800 years by this haughty power? So far from being relinquished, this claim was affirmed in the 19th century with greater positiveness than ever before. And so on. So here is a critique of that paradigm. And then this you might disagree with today and, and, and you know, it, it might need to be to be qualified or, or, or discussed. Here is what she claims here. She says that infallibility is part of the institutional DNA of the, of the, uh, of the Roman, Roman Catholic system, which I think, I think many Roman Catholics might not be entirely happy to have that charge made against, against them. The papal church will never relinquish her claim to infallibility. All that she has done in her persecution... now. That I think many Roman Catholics would not be willing to defend everything, that they would in fact apologize for certain things. And the Roman Catholic Church today is apologizing for, for, for uh, some of the abuse that, that children have had in, 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 in certain countries. That it is an apology that has been forthcoming, kicking and screaming that it has been imposed on the institution because the institution has not wanted to do what? To be accountable, what do you have to do? I mean, what do we need for accountability to work? You need transparency, you need openness. And if you don't have that, it will not work, you see. So these are, there is a sort of continuum of values here that needs to, to, to hang together. And then she is also saying that that if there is a sort of infallibility uh, uh, self-image here, then you could have a relapse. You could see the, the institutions, the religious institutions, relapsing to become coercive. Again, I think these are controversial claims and, and, and may or may not, may, may or may not be, may, may need to be, to be nuanced a little here. If you take the notion of infallibility to its logical conclusion, what does it mean? It means that if you hold another opinion, you hold an illegitimate opinion. Isn't that true? I mean, if the, if the opinion, if the belief that, you, that the institution has, or the Pope, or whoever, you know, that you hold that belief infallibly, then your opinion... Your contrary opinion is an illegitimate opinion. And if it is an illegitimate... See, this goes all the way back to Augustine. Augustine is a good man. Let's not do him, let's not do him injustice. There is much, much, again, just like Luther, there is, there is in some ways a, such a raw sincerity to Luther. And a kind of raw sincerity to Augustine too. That means that you cannot just put them in the, in the bad, you know, these terrible people. But Augustine buys into that notion of imperial authority and says that there are opinions that people hold that are erroneous opinions. And we know them to be wrong. And for your good, for your good, we're not meaning to hurt you, 
but for your good, we will coerce you to give up those opinions. And afterwards, when we have coerced you to give up those opinions that were bad for you, you will say thank you for doing that. See? That's how it works. So that means that infallibility and coercion are ideologically somehow related to each other. Can you see that? That there is a kind of coherence to, to a paradigm. That infallibility is, is in some ways not a, not a peripheral issue in, in this kind of matter, you know, system. Yes. So is God infallible? Is God a priori infallible? Is, 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 is it a given, a sort of un, un, non-negotiable, is God axiomatically, a priori, whatever, before we have seen anything, is God infallible? Or is God's infallibility something that has to be demonstrated and something that has to be sort of play itself out and then we knew that it was, you know, do I think God is infallible? I kind of do. Do I think that God wants to be, uh, to, to sort of, that accountability is out? It doesn't seem that way. It seems to me in Adventism we have had, you know, good, good uh, statements here to, to uh, the country. I will not read these statements. I invite you to look them up in your handout. The subject of revelation and trust. God reveals, and I trust. But I do not trust you know, blindly in a sort of no man's land. God reveals, and I trust, faith and understanding. See, uh, it's interesting to see how in Ellen G. White's writings there is the word understanding. The true character of the usurper and his real object, speaking of Satan, must be understood by all, and so on. Yes. So there is so God kind of puts something out there for us to respond to, and again here uh, the combination here I combine these words. This is from the chapter um, it is finished in the book Desire of Ages, where there is disclosure and transparency. They go hand in hand, and and God is 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 practicing that. Uh, uh, so uh, he doesn't work by force and he doesn't work by secrecy. Uh, he works by openness, transparency, persuasion. You know, and just taking the, the Bible as a story, you have all the, the greatest people in the Bible, from Abraham all the way through, that just, you know, God came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham said, well, you can't do that. And, you know, Habakkuk, and just the, the Psalms, example after example, of people seeming to really put God on the spot and asking him about the things he's doing and saying they don't make sense and asking for clarification. So that just seems very difficult. Well, that's, that's a great example, of course, the story of Abraham where he talks back to God and said, you can't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You know, and, and, and there is an interaction here. I, I'm skipping these two statements on transparency and trust. And then I just want to go to a personal uh, note and the end. Uh, about a year ago, maybe, I think, I, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I got a, a, a kind of a little strange invitation to participate in a new project 
the, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a new inter, there, there is a plan to make a new international Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary. And it was not clear to me exactly, it was not disclosed to me, you might say, exactly who was behind this project, but it is a project in the making. It's a big project. It's supposed to produce a new uh, Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, and when it is launched, it's going to be launched in Spanish, Russian, in several languages all at once. So it's a kind of a big, a big, um, uh, very ambitious project in, in the Adventist church. I think it's supposed to be, be ready by, uh, within five years. And then this person contacted me. He is my friend who's part of this. And he contacted me and said that he had deemed me worthy of writing the commentary if I would be interested in writing the commentary on the Gospel of John. So I thought that was quite flattering. And I thought, well, you know, you never know. <laughs> and I love the Gospel of John. So I thought maybe I could be up to doing that. I asked him, by the way, why aren't you asking me to write on Revelation? Because <laughs> I said, the Gospel of John only needs a good reader. But the book of Revelation needs a good interpreter. <laughs> so you, I felt a little, but be that as it may. So he said, well, we have this commitment, interpretive commitment you have to make. You have to sign on to a certain way of looking at this material. So I thought, well, I'm sure I can sign that, I thought. Uh, and then, so I, initially I said, I, I had read through it, and I told him that I didn't see any problems. I told this person on the phone. But then I sat down to read it, and there it was, something that for me was a problem. This is what I was, this is what that, this uh, statement was saying. In the context of the great controversy, it is not the role of humans to bring God into judgment, but vice versa. This theological presupposition is especially important in the interpretation of passages in Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Romans, and Revelation, which have often been viewed from a rational, empirical perspective. I have no idea what they mean by rational, empirical perspective. I, I, I don't think they have any idea either, whoever, whoever made this. But, so what was it? So I, I called them back, or I wrote back, I said, I, can, I agree with everything, uh, but I do not want to sign that statement. I cannot sign that statement. Uh, I cannot sign that it is in the context of the great controversy, especially, that there is not divine accountability. Now, nobody I know believes that human beings are dragging God into, into uh, you know, accountability. So here are some questions in the end. <clears throat> Which is the most more distinctive SDA belief? Number one, that we are accountable to God or that God wields accountable authority. Which would you say is the most distinctive Adventist belief? And I'm claiming that these are Adventist beliefs, by the way. Which is, uh, I mean, you might disagree. You might say these are not Adventist beliefs, but I think they are Adventist beliefs. Please forgive me if you... I'm wrong on Which is the more distinctive Adventist belief? That we are accountable to God? Everybody believes that. There is nothing distinctively Adventist about that. That God wields accountable authority? 
that is unique to Adventism. That is extremely unique. There is nothing in this long theological tradition, there is really nothing there that says that God wields an accountable authority. It is the opposite that is being affirmed there. So I'd say that that is unique. If there is divine accountability, is it because we demand it or because God demands it? It's God. God is, seems to want to have it that way. This is, see, let's not fall asleep. There are issues out there, how we define, define ourselves, how de we define our core beliefs, and how, what we say about God. You know, what is it? What is God up to? What is, what, uh, what, what is really the basic affirmations and our contribution to, uh, to these affirmations? And I wonder then, are we no longer permitted to find the message of divine, divine accountability in Isaiah, Romans, and Revelation? So I had a little bit of a contentious back and forth with the, this project. And then they, they told me, I said, I want to do it, but I want to do it without agreeing to that particular thing. They said, you can't do it. <laughs> anyway that you cannot do it because they wanted me to sign on to that. And maybe I was, you know, over-interpreting it. Maybe I was overly sensitive, but I really felt they were up to something and I just couldn't agree to that. <coughs> but uh, we'll talk next time then about re-acceptance of the mother. Thank you. It was nice to be back here and see you all again.